0: Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBond. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. First up in this episode, I catch up with David Ian Gray, founder and strategist behind retail consultancy DIG360. We touch base on his ongoing and recent research into consumer behavior and partnership with Leger in a Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Boxing Day, Consumer Shopping Results 2019. Next, Sherilyn Jolly Nagel, farmer advocate spokesperson, joins me again on the podcast after our session together in Ottawa at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Market Access Summit. We catch up after the summer growing season and fall harvest season, and discuss the incredible forces and mega trends in the food industry, how they're impacting farmers, and ultimately, food on retailer shelves. Finally, recorded live in Montreal at RCC's DTLQC Conference, Michelle Sierra, president of Blue Star Canada, walks us through the retail technology product infrastructure. The impact of big platform and product trends such as 5G and enhanced security, and unpacks the role of distributors and value added resellers in the retail industry. Lastly, I'll hit the highlights from retail this week for the week of December 16th. But first, let's jump into my interview with David Ian Gray. David, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Listen, you and I have known each other a long time, but for the listeners, uh, take us a little bit through
1: your personal and professional journey. I guess I've had, the early part of my career was a little bit eclectic. It was um, one of the biggest corporations in Canada, Imperial Oil, and early career in, uh, in finance and ops, but it was a bit too big. And then uh, varying things over a number of years, including environmental and strategy and research. And I found myself uh, in the late 90s, in the world of retail you know i kind of i laugh a bunch of us who were back from that area we kind of laugh saying you know sucked in and it's hard to leave (laughs) and really rewarding and what what i ended up doing was um i'm very interested in transformation and how people make how organizations and people personally transform over an arc of time and i coupled that with the background i had early on which was around um the dialogue and decision-making that goes into strategic decisions. I kind of found a wedge into, into retail early on, which was producing research and studies uh, for the sector broadly and for sp- specific retail clients. I became very adept at tailoring research to retail as opposed to broad-based research technique. But um, I was naive, and back in those days, This was the era when retail was actually fairly uncompeted compared to now. And and it was, you'll remember the days you you put, um, if you had a concept where you had a margin that worked and people liked your product, you would just start rolling out stores under a formula. And the whole thing was to be quite linear in execution and really just build stores, source product, market up, get staff, have the staff do what they're told, and you can make a lot of money doing that. And back in those what, days, this whole like... transformation notion in my head, uh, a lot of my early business was telcos and finance, uh, because retail was doing pretty well. And it wasn't really until the uh, American and global onslaught, and then e-com and, and online and and such, where, uh, where retail has gone through a, a real kind of internal transformation and Suddenly it lines up, but that, that's the beginning. And then I've got a boutique out in Vancouver. We do advisory with uh, senior leaders at um, predominantly specialty chains, but the larger regional or national guys. And uh, it's on that theme of, um, you know, everything from diagnosing to navigating road mapping through what undoubtedly is, is really a transformation um, collectively, but e- each organization has their individual journey. And uh, we we try to help as best we can, and we've had a lot of fun doing it. I've Got a few other guys with me, but that's it's a small, nimble group. Well, you've had a front window seat, and in some ways, a, a, a
0: seat in the driver's seat of twenty years plus of, of tremendous transformation in retail. And, and one of the things you and I often talk about is uh, you know, as part of this transformation, uh, this new these new holidays, this Black Friday, Cyber Monday. You've been doing research on this for years i think it, it it's uh it's always interesting i think you're interested in it just you know even if you weren't in retail it's just so fascinating to try and understand it and um, so i want to touch base with you on you just released the uh, the black friday and holiday shopping report so you kind of do a pre and post that looks like you do some work with Léger, uh, which retail council works with as well mm-hmm. so it's a great firm um so just just hot off the press uh some insights into um Black Friday and holiday shopping in Canada. Take us through what you learned uh, about this about uh, about this season.
1: Well, for this, uh, you know, this season doesn't sort of exist totally in in a microcosm, and you know, the growth in Canada, which I always thought was a ridiculous proposition to do Black Friday here, I still kind of do. Early days, oh eight oh nine, but 2010, 2011, it started to just run through the sector, and um, what we've what we found is. More or less, it's plateaued the last few years. And by that, I mean, um, I'll use this year as an example, and then I'll compare it back. Uh, But we found about um, 55% of Canadians this year, adult Canadians, took part in Black Friday. And by taking part, it's one of two things. It's either buying product. Or it's you're browsing at least, like you're actively looking. You may opt, you know, you're not getting what you wanted or at the price, but you're, you're engaged with it. Mm-hmm. And that means 45% weren't. And the last few years, you know, the percentages are up and down a little bit, but it, it, it's fairly consistent. And I think that's the first sort of meaning here that we need to talk about. It's not everybody engages on Black Friday. On the other hand, for a particular uh, season or or week or even day you don't need everyone engaging in it half the public engaging in it is still quite substantive i'm just making the point that there are people who don't get caught up in the hype and i think the other the other point is um and, and i know there's there's research and you guys do some good stuff uh earlier before black friday happens and um You know, I think one of the confusion, the media always wants to know, well, how is Black Friday compared to Boxing Day? But Boxing Day is pretty clear cut. If you ask someone, did you buy something on Boxing Day? They'll say yes or no, but it was Boxing Day. When you ask about Black Friday, it's really Black Friday month. Like people are buying the stuff. They're seeing the deals, you know, as late as late October. It was a little bit delayed this year uh, in terms of the visible promotions, but people are buying all the way through the seasons. We, when people we talked to after the fact said they bought Black Friday deals, um, about half of them buy on the day and, and the rest are buying on other days through the month of November. And I think that's kind of, you know, early on uh, surveys that are done maybe September, October, November, uh, sorry, uh, September, October they're often, I think, getting people saying, hey, we, we're going to shop Black Friday, but the person's not really thinking whether it's that day. They just know they're going to get a Black Friday deal. And I think those numbers line up. So we found uh, in Canada about 37% of people uh, bought a Black Friday deal this year, which is quite a lot of people. Uh, it was 19% on the day of. And that's quite consistent. Uh last oh, year it was seventeen percent on the day of the year before it was seventeen percent on the day off. So it's a big sample. It's about um fifteen hundred people. Uh you know Leger Christian Bork over there, he's fantastic. And uh we, what we do a little different is we, yeah. we we go out after Black Friday. So we're what we're trying to do is find out what mm-hmm. what really happened. And we started doing that in twenty ten because there's a lot of back then the mythology around it was the media was saying every Canadian and their cat was cross-border shopping. I don't I don't know if you remember those days, but the whole story there was cross-border, and we just kind of knew it wasn't exactly the case. So we wanted to shine a light on it and see what the truth was. Uh, so that's what we're doing. So those are a couple of our big, you know, top-level findings. Um, I'll, I'll kind of pause there because you may have some directions you want to take it.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, thank you for, for giving the highlight. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned uh, the survey – that uh, that i was involved in retail council of canada did a survey uh with leger as well great uh, great shop and a, a lot of these numbers are starting to line up in in some ways and and you're right about a couple of things uh, you're right about many things if not all about you know definitionally when when you ask people are you going to shop a black friday deal uh that could be the week prior that could be the day after so uh it's nice that you kind of hone in on Day of uh, when I spoke to retailers uh, coast to coast, they had a great yeah. uh, Black Friday weekend uh, as we defined it, and we're trying to figure out what Cyber Monday does as a bookmark event. And when I look at some of your numbers, they start to line up. So, you know, when we talked to Canadians uh, in October about intention, and again, this is intention, very different from what you're measuring, which is what I actually did. 43% said they were going to shop on a Black Friday uh shop a black friday deal and i think your numbers are in the high uh, you know what i would say that's pretty spot on
1: and 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 people um when you're asking people in advance so we do a little bit of that ourselves we we play that because we also ask about their intention for boxing day and boxing week and when we go out then the next year we say did you shop last year on boxing day and what we find is Mm. it's always overstated when people are speculating what they might do on the day of things come up, it's easier to say, yeah, I'm probably going to do it and then not do it uh, in reality. So, you know, those things are good indicators. And the other way they kind of serve a purpose might is um, if you're comparing your October number to the year before, to the year before, it's a real gauge on customer sentiment, you know, shopping sentiment, because if the numbers are up, it means they're Mm -hmm. interested in buying. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, I would say the lineup there, the other one, you and I had a little chat when, when that was out and I, I was pretty adamant that I thought mm-hmm. Black Friday is still not going to match Boxing Day in terms of, um, the, we look at the, we're looking at the human side of it. So the percentage of people who are engaged in, in the event. So we were, you know, I was still pretty certain that Boxing Day would hang on at least a little longer as being the, uh, more trafficked and bought day not necessarily in sales dollars but in people out there and i'm i'm actually we did a bunch of predictions beforehand Um, we're pretty spot on with the uh, percentage that we're buying uh, through the month and the day but we were wrong on cyber monday and we're we might be a little wrong on boxing day So I'm now saying Boxing Day, I think, is going to be in a dead heat with with Black Friday, which from our purposes will be the first time that's happened. And so you you get that one. And then the other one that I really, really surprised me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, good for you. I mean, you know, I love I love the fact you make
0: predictions because it's so you you put yourself out there and you make the predictions and and you know, we all make predictions, you make more than I, and you're, you know, sometimes you're right, you're, you're not, right, you're not correct, or you're off. And that's okay, right? Because you're making predictions. And, and it's, they're all intelligent informed. And, and uh, one way or the other, it adds, uh, well, it adds
1: insight. Well, hey, I appreciate so that. Thank you and, for and doing that. You don't want to know about my weather forecasting, I kind of think I'm good at that I go by, you know, do I have aches <laughs> in my knees and stuff? <laughs> Cyber Monday I find very, very interesting because um, I don't get it anymore. There's these things that just bug me, and Cyber Monday meant a lot when Black Friday in the States was all bricks and mortar. But now you've got uh, Black Friday is totally online. So I'm I'm kind of thinking, well, what's Cyber Monday? But I guess, you know, on the one hand, it's it's the ability to continue marketing and and not really extend the fatigue factor of the shopper hearing the same message. You know, you get a little refresh there. And, uh, but I think the Cyber Monday in our data, it was up a bit over last year. And we did a little call around with different, uh, different execs. And they were saying that there was a bump. You know, what you're
0: hearing is what I'm hearing. And, and some, um, you know, we heard when we talked to retailers coast to coast as well, that uh, it was a good year over year was a good Black Friday, good Black Friday weekend, uh, a little soft on the Sunday afternoon in Eastern Ontario because we had a bit of bad weather that put a dent into a bit of momentum. Some picked it up on their online sales, others did not. Um, and some talked about, interestingly, because you bring up this great point, what what is Cyber Monday in this this world of omni-channel? And, and some said, well, listen, A, it's a bookmarked event, so it's just another chance to promote, uh, you know, as you just said, put another kind of spin on um, the same or different or slightly um, you know, varied promotions. But some are starting to use it like an early Boxing Day, which is, I thought, really interesting. In other words, um, let's, uh, let's take a first early pulse on maybe a few items that we have a few too many of, which, of course, traditionally has been one of the rationales behind Boxing Day. So I thought that was interesting. I think there was some success in that, too, that in that thinking that, uh, well, we need to differentiate the strategy somehow um so you know, let's um let's not A let's continue the same deals probably, but and and let's roll out some that maybe we've got uh a few too many of even before you get to Boxing day. Cause you know, as you know, as you yeah. said right from the top, yeah. it's late this year, right? It's the twenty ninth, uh six less shopping days in the month of December. So um Well yeah, we no, everybody's I, gotta hustle. That's that. for sure.
1: Um I'll throw a couple of things though. So those are kind of the high scene set things and, you know, sort of what's the lay of the land. But the, there's a few things that have started to catch my attention a little bit that are worth watching and I'll share with you and see what you think. We started tracking three years ago, um, singles day, which is in, globally is the biggest selling day of the year, but we wouldn't really know it here. It's November 11th. Remembrance day. that's going to be dealt with very gently. But globally, and particularly in Asia, it is a massive day. And we thought, well, when Black Friday began, it started, you know, with a bit of a whimper, and we were tracking it. So we wanted to get in ahead of it to benchmark. It's still pretty low, but uh, what's interesting is we're about eight percent of Canadians bought single stay items, and and that that's actually not bad. Wow. The important part, though, is awareness of what it is, is only sitting at about 36%. And it reminds me of when Black Friday in Canada was starting to take off. The big the big issue there was a lot of Canadians really didn't know what it was. And once it became ubiquitous. So I don't think it's ever going to become a major day because there, there'd be such a backlash with overhype because it is Remembrance Day. But keep in mind, um, people are buying globally now through online. And my guess would be there's a lot of uh, people who come from China, other Asian countries who, are, who you know, are, are locked in on Alibaba to begin with, which is really the Alibaba day. What I noticed this year is other brands are starting to pile on. Like Ted Baker was running an online single-stay promotion. So it's just going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I, I would agree that in Canada you're not going to see domestic hype, but you may see some dollars bleed out Um offshore on that one uh the other thing that we we tracked last year for the first time is friction around online deliveries at this time of year because of the canada post strike and that was a one-off that was a unicorn moment yeah. but we kept the question in and so the question is for people who bought black friday item they experienced any delays uh in their online orders and 26% of the people said they experienced delays. Now, whether that was a true delay or they just thought it should be here faster and you know, it was, it doesn't matter because the point is it was an expectation. Um, what we did differently this year is we also asked looking forward to the uh, gift giving side of things at Christmas time and Hanukkah. Uh, do, do you have any concerns about, um, timeliness of the order and accuracy of the order. And we had a, a significant number. It's about 40. Um, this is all fresh off the press. I'm doing the numbers here from my head, but about 45, 47% had some concerns around both of those things. And what's, and I think who tapped on that last year just during the postal strike and they're running the ads again was winners, Marshalls, and, and home sense. Um, with their uh you know their campaign about uh offline shopping and how it's novel and new and i think Mm -hmm. yeah and i think what we're going to see two two parts to that that means something one is i think we're going to see people turning back to stores more quickly like probably already now they're they're there because if it's for a gift um if it's local if it's if it's something you're you're trying to get overseas or whatever, you might be hooped now already. But uh, if it's local, I think people are going to be turning to stores. The other, uh, I guess, aspect to this is um, y- you've got this this high volume time uh, is really stressful. When I talk to retailers, I'm sure you do too, it's a very stressy time of year for them. And it's all about peaks and valleys, right? Like one day could be off the charts and and your staff are going nuts trying to either ship items from a warehouse or try and keep stock on the shelf. And then you get a, a down day. The issue though is high volume days are showing you the future. And so it's your stress test on the systems you're creating. And almost everyone has this magic number. They think they're going to get 20% com business, you know, in the near future. I, I think the issue is we're not quite ready yet. I don't think we're game ready to be proficient at high volume year round e-com and but it's a good chance to test it out and i think you're seeing the the organizations that are getting through it without too many hiccups they can be a little bit more confident that they can start building for that future and the ones that are struggling through a, a tough black friday with orders and systems down they know they got work to do
0: well david you've got um tremendous insight into retail. So thank you so much for for joining me. I can't believe I've had the podcast for this many episodes and this is the first time you've been on it. So that's um, my bad, but let's make sure that we continue to rectify that in 2020 and have you on and talk about Boxing Day and insights for the new year, all kinds of great stuff. So uh, in the interim, how can people get hold of you or Uh, perhaps even uh, a glimpse of this uh, study available i think the easiest way is
1: www.dig360.ca and by the way thanks for having me on and doing this i had a lot of fun thank you very much carolyn welcome back to
0: the voice of retail how are you doing
2: Michael. I'm great. Thank you very much. I'm looking out my office window at a lot of snow and that's good for farmers, but it's also really good because we own snowmobiles and that makes getting through the winter that much more fun.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, um, for my listeners who didn't, or maybe didn't have a chance to hear our first interview, catch us up a little bit. Tell us about yourself and uh, your connection to the food on the shelves of retailers coast to coast.
2: Sure. Thanks. Um, I'm a fourth generation farmer And I'm farming with my husband, who is likely also four or five generations into farming. So this is what we both grew up doing. Uh, There's no cattle, no livestock on our farm operation. We grow chickpeas and lentils. We grow durum wheat, which makes pasta, canola. And this year, we put some barley into our rotation. It's a family farm operation. We farm with David's brother and my sister-in-law. His parents are still here. About twenty miles down the road is my brother and my dad and my all of my family down there, and they're busy farming as well. So this is what we grew up doing, and we're really happy being far, you know being farmers today and raising our two daughters. Claire's thirteen, and Addison's eleven. In two more sleeps. <laughs> So we're happy, yeah, yeah, happy raising the kids out here and, and enjoying life on the farm in Saskatchewan.
0: And when we talk about a farm, we're not talking about a hobby farm here. I, My recollection was 18,000 acres. Am I close?
2: Yes, yeah, that's correct.
0: And each acre, for us uh, who are less familiar with that kind of measurement, that's like about a football field, right? An acre is more or less like about a football field. So we're really talking a, a massive... Yeah. Enterprise, right?
2: Yeah, well, I guess so. In Saskatchewan, we tend to fall back on sports analogies, and everybody (laughs) here is a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan. So, yeah, a football field is roughly the size of an acre, and that's helpful for my non-farming friends to picture that's the size of a football field. Mm -hmm. So we have about eighteen thousand of those. It's not you know terribly uncommon in Western Canada to have a farm size. the, of, of that nature, uh, farm sizes are getting bigger i, I I'm not sure exactly. I think the average farm size in Saskatchewan is roughly around two thousand acres call it twenty five hundred so it, it's larger than average, but it isn't uncommon, especially in this area we We do have you know three families three three families that are farming you know in in this one family entity, family farm entity. So, when you break that up into three separate farms, you know, it's it, it, the number doesn't seem quite so unmanageable.
0: Right, right. Um, you and I were recently together in Ottawa for uh, a summit put on by Agriculture Canada and AgriFood. So, we had a brief time to chat. You were very popular. So, I'm doing this call back from uh, from Toronto, back to, uh, to Moss Bank. But let's Catch me, catch us up, catch the listeners up on the summer. You and I spoke initially in in the late spring of this year. How was the summer? You mentioned a couple of things thrown at you, and let's uh, let's give me a quick overview of how your summer uh, went in terms of the uh, the
1: farm.
2: You know the the entire growing season for twenty nineteen was very challenging. We were coming into the spring, looking like we were dealt the drought card. There was very little uh, subsoil moisture, very little moisture in general while we were planting the seeds. And, you know, come the middle of June, we were quite concerned and quite convinced that this was going to be a year of drought and we may not have much of anything to harvest. And then we had a, you know, a complete change of weather pattern and we started to get rain and we got quite a bit of rain more than our annual uh, average so we got a lot of rain after that point which meant that you know the, the crops in the field weren't growing at exactly the same time um but for the most part the yields were were Great. You know, we had better than average yield on our Durham and you know, we actually did quite well in terms of yielding. It did pose some problems for the pulse crops and the disease. Pulse crops are, are subject to a lot of disease, and when there's extra moisture, uh, that disease bed um, is pretty prominent. So we struggle with disease again this year in the pulse crops. We also had, you know, hail. I think it was three times we had hailstorms come through. Which damaged the barley crops. I would say the most substantially. We lost probably thirty percent or more of our barley crops, uh, maybe more to to hail. So that was another curveball that Mother Nature threw us. And yeah, you know, it was just a really challenging year. Where you, you and I were at the summit for for trade and market access, and trade was was a really tumultuous issue for farmers uh, this year. Uh, lots of. Um, lots of fighting going on in global trade. So that was also playing a role in the hardship of 2019 and incredibly low commodity prices. So yeah, we kind of got a little bit of everything this year. I think most farmers in this area were very happy to see 2019 uh, close <laughs> and say goodbye to that mm.
0: one. Well, that's a nice segue to my, uh, my next question, uh, which is 2020 and beyond. What are the top issues on your mind if you know, if you could speak um, on behalf of the farming community, we we continue to see global trade issues uh, of all sorts and and um, uh, all kinds of things happening in, in that. But what what's on your mind uh, in terms of uh, um, in terms of your industry?
2: Yeah, so definitely trade would be uh, at the top of the list for us. We 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 have a need for strong trade agreements. And at the moment, even the countries where I would have considered us to have really strong relationships with the U.S., for example, we are connected by a border and we should have strong trade agreements being neighbors. And right now, we still do not have the USMCA ratified. It does appear that we're making some progress on that file. So uh, I'll hold my breath for a little bit but trade agreements are certainly a a strong need for our bulk export market, our bulk export nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on top of that, we need new markets. We've we've got, you know, relationships around the world that we've done business with for many, many years, but we're too reliant on them. We've seen the ramifications of that with China and India and, and the U.S. So we need new markets. We need to continuously uh, build relationships with other countries around the world and find out how we can make some inroads selling what we grow here. I think also, you know, the, the general acceptance of technology is is a file that uh, that I'm working on through other organizations like the wheat growers and the Global Farmer Network. We, in general, are trying mm-hmm. to build a case for the acceptance of technology, and that that's everything from you know biotechnology and GMOs to drones and the use of um, crop protection products, all of those things I put in a, a pile called technology. And consumers awesome. are getting less and less supportive of technology within the agriculture industry, and that will have a huge impact for those of us trying to farm into the future. Um, when we think yeah, about uh, it, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to go on to a whole bunch of other things, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you, you asked me for a well, list. I'm going to give you a long, a long list.
0: It's a big list. Uh, when you think about the top three things, so clearly number one would be would be trade. Uh, what were the other two things? If you could put them into kind of one, two, and three, as you think about 2020, you know, both upside and challenges. But what what would the the other two top priorities be if you had to rank them one, two, three? One sounds like trade. What what would the other two be?
2: Well, I guess if it's the Christmas season, I should probably have a bit of a wish list. But it's hard. It's hard to prioritize all of these things that our industry needs. Mm. But I suppose you're right. Trade, that would be our, our number one. We, we need new markets. We need to be less reliant um, on a few. I guess also on my wish, my wish list would be acknowledge from, acknowledgement from the federal government that that they appreciate and support agriculture. You know, agriculture contributes substantially to the economy. That's through jobs. That's through GDP in general. That's through safe food. You know, we need some acknowledgement from our federal government that they appreciate that. You know, acknowledging and appreciating what agriculture is doing for this country, and, and oftentimes we're not even mentioned. You know, in a throne speech or or at all throughout campaign trails, and. We need to hear hmm. that the government is supportive of us. So, I mean, they could ratify the USMCA. We could get that one moved along. But also, yep. you know, addressing the carbon tax, <laughs> at hmm. least showing... what's your perspective
0: on the... Yeah, what's your, what's your perspective on the carbon tax? It, it, how does it impact you and farmers specifically um, so that it, it, it raises to one of those three things?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely affects the farmers today we are contributing to the environmental sustainability farmers are part of the answer we are not crippling mother nature every year we are we are making decisions that help us leave the land in better shape for the next generation so i think the carbon tax you know we could have had a really good news story coming out of agriculture When the government wanted to address the issue of the environment in general, but carbon and global climate change, all of Mm. those things, they could have pointed to agriculture and said, look at all the amazing things we have done over the past several decades to improve improve the land, improve the environment. But instead, we felt as an industry, we felt attacked. When the, when the mm. carbon tax came out, it was pointing the finger at agriculture, saying, this is how you're going to pay for what you've done. And we kind of got out of the tractor and went, what do you mean? Like, we, we've made all of these amazing decisions that we forgot to tell you about. Sorry about that. But give us a minute. Let, let's explain you know, what we've been able to do and how we're actually contributing to, to the situation we're in today. So I would like to, I certainly would add that to, to my list of things. And then lastly, I would add, oh boy, it would be a toss-up between a reliable, cost-effective, efficient transportation system, uh, everything from mm-hmm. getting, you know, the trucking and the roads from getting the grain, you know, on the farm all the way to the elevator and then on a, on the railway out to the port of Vancouver, you know, and then we've got, Import situations and demerge charges, and all of these things that relate to the transportation of of what we grow out to the to the markets that we need. But lastly, if I could have you know that last wish, it would be to have you know well-informed consumers. I, I see mm-hmm. this trend building to a point where consumer food trends are having an impact in how we are able to grow food. You know, those food trends are are not necessarily aligning with really sound science evidence. And I would point to glyphosate as an example, GMOs as an example. Man, we just really need consumers to ha- take a look at what their information sources are and start including some farmers in their in their questions. I, I kind of make it you know a, a mission of mine to talk to as many consumers as I can throughout the year, especially through the winter time when we're not busy, uh, but through the winter time talking to consumers about their fears when it comes to food, their choices that they're making, and, and doing the best that I can to answer some of the questions that they have and subside some of the fear that's been uh, you know flitting about the social media industry for sure. About uh, you know scary things happening on the farm and what that means for people's food.
0: We talked about that in our uh, our first interview, so I'm do, I am glad you brought that up and the fact that um, you know and we won't go into it in this interview. I'll put a link to the last one and just how you know as a as a community or as a, as a business farmers just kind of you know didn't really focus on that what the methods was happening in and around them, Um so I'm glad you you brought that up. Let's let's transition that thought into the grocery retailers. What can grocery retailers, what's your advice to grocery retailers across the country? You know, how can we as an industry collectively help our farmers deliver quality and value and and, and a coherent message uh, to consumers? Because, you know, the number one touch point for products uh, are, are the retailers. So, What advice would you have or message would you have for retailers coast to coast?
2: Well, definitely retailers play an important piece of this whole this whole food conversation. So I'm a farmer and the challenge for me is that what I grow on my farm operation is not in the form of a product that I sell directly to the consumer. So I grow chickpeas and lentils. Both of those are not processed here on my, on my farm. So they go into a bulk market. Durham wheat is not processed here on my farm, so I don't grind it up to make the, the flour, the semolina that makes pasta. I don't have a canola oil processing plant here, so I'm shipping bulk canola. Same with barley. We don't make our own beer on the farm either. <laughs> so what I grow is a, is a bulk product that gets shipped off this farm and into, um, into various other products that the retail industry will then put on the shelf. So I'm a consumer too, and when I'm walking around the grocery store, I often see the products that are grown on my farm in a value-added form. And that can be a really cool story, and I can get pretty excited about that and talk to my kids about that. But also I can be frustrated because the product that left my farm was, you know, a safe, healthy food. And then when I see it in the grocery store, sometimes the labeling or the marketing around those products makes it look as though there should be a sense of fear around what people choose. And I'll give you an example. I've taken a picture of a package of celery in a grocery store in Saskatchewan, and on the package of celery was a gluten-free label. And I was so perplexed by this thinking, Whoa. first of all, first of all, celery, I mean, come on. I think celery's sole purpose in life is the garnish on a Caesar. So it's really <laughs> not, I mean, it's not contributing in terms of our, you know, our, our overall health. So good on yeah. your celery. But somebody in the marketing department for celery thought that putting a gluten-free label on the package was a good way to sell more salary. And that, mm. that indicates to me how far away from the farm we've gotten. And it's a reminder of the, the true and valuable information that Canadians really need when it comes to their food. We are so, so privileged in this country to have access to this kind of abundance of safe, healthy food. Canadians should not be worried about the food safety or the health of their of their food. Having said that, I am, you know, I'm also really interested in the nutritional value of the food. I'm a mother, so I'm feeding my kids, I'm feeding my family, and I'm trying to do a good job of that. So I want safe and healthy food, but Canada is a leader when it comes to providing safe healthy food choices and my message to the to the retailers is to be very transparent and honest about the the labeling and the marketing of the products that are on your shelves and I understand that this is a, a marketing industry and you're trying to sell products but it's important that we that we address the fear that Canadians have around their food and not play into that you know those consumer trends
0: well, you know, I think you so well stated, um, and such a great overview of the industry. And and um, I wanted to thank you for coming back on to the Voice of Retail. Let's catch up again uh, real soon in the spring, and we'll see how these uh, these issues uh, continue to proceed and and resolve themselves. But for now, I wanted to wish you uh, a, a happy holidays and uh, safe travels wherever you go, and and a great uh, great season for growing next year. And thanks again for joining me on the Voice of Retail
2: michael i I really want to thank you for for giving me the opportunity to reach the retail industry you know as as a farmer, I want to be able to to answer questions that the retail industry has from the farmer's perspective right from the farm gate if there's if there's people within your network that Want to call or want to come out to the farm? Need a farm tour? Really need a stronger connection back to the farm? I do hope they consider this as an as an invitation and an opportunity for me to connect them back to the farming community that's growing this food. I think that's an an imperative connection that we need to build.
0: Well, that's a great point. And how uh, how can uh, people, how can retailers and and listeners find you online? Do you have a website? Uh, what's, what what uh, what can we point them to?
2: Yeah, I do have a website. I, I'm I'm not great <laughs> at the promotion <laughs> side of it, but listen, you can. I do have a website. It's uh, www.Sherilyn at Um And uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, I, I just want to make myself available, absolutely. And you can certainly email me. And, and if you contact Michael, he knows how to get a hold of me, too.
0: Well, perfect. Well, thanks, Sherilyn. Thanks for being my guest, and and I wish you again uh, a great uh, winter and a and a great spring for planting.
2: Thank you so much, Michael. Again, I appreciate the opportunity to to hang out with you.
0: Michelle, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy that uh, we're in the same place at the same time here in Montreal, Retail Council Canada's event. Thank you for, for joining us. It's great to see you again. You and I have been in different places around the world. We have. T- together, so uh, I thought a great opportunity for those uh, listeners, for, for my listeners to introduce yourself and a little bit about Blue Star and and really talk about the ecosystem around retail in terms of hardware, technology, and services. But why don't we start with a little bit about your personal and professional journey? Sure. Um, I've always been into the
3: logistics logistics side of the business. I started in logistics and transportation Hmm. for a a number of years. Then I joined an organization in technology tied to barcoding Uh, the first couple of years of Uh, the barcoding era that lasted for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, so the Zellers of this world and Sears
0: and and on and on. Very resilient barcodes, right? I mean, they're still one of the only few things that are adopted universally across all industries, right? You know what? Uh,
3: A lot of people are talking about migrating from barcoding to something else, i.e. RFID or whatnot, but if it's a simple data capture one single field it's the most reliable and mm. cheapest way of uh, capturing data
0: and then that's what kind of put the spike into RFID right uh, sure it sounds on one hand very wonderful but then when you start to add up the little RFIDs and tens of hundreds of millions of products anyway we're getting off course but i just wanted to
3: right, talk right. about that so let's so, get, so,
0: let's okay. get back to you so
3: so <laughs> Lasted lasted uh, with a barcoating uh, technology for, for quite some time. Then I joined a manufacturer, i.e. Mm. Motorola, mm. Uh, who became Zebra. Yeah, uh, led the organization in Canada for a couple of years. And mm. uh, six years ago, I joined the Blue Star. Right. So so always in the logistics, dance slash, technology mm. side of the business. Yeah. Uh, very exciting. And it's a, a
0: ever-changing uh, world. <laughs> Um, and it's not slowing down. Well, let's talk about Blue Star sure. specifically, and that will help uh, us understand the ecosystem. Tell me what Blue, who Blue Star is, and, and what you do uh, for a living. What the what the company right. does? Right. So, so privately held uh, distributor of technology,
3: very focused and niched on a couple of verticals. Uh, we're not a broadband distributor. Uh, there's no appetite for us to do this. Mm. Uh, why? Because our one of the mission we got is not to be a box pusher. Hmm. Uh, if we can use a slang word, uh, it, we're, we're not a box pusher. So we truly, truly focus on, on value-add. And there's a, a couple of verticals, i.e. retail, uh, POS, uh, digital signage, mobile, and hmm. mobility uh, that impose uh, a bit more knowledge, a bit more understanding, when there's complexity, there's uh, value and margin. Mm-hmm. So these are the focused area that Blue Star is involved in. Uh, worldwide organization with uh, head office uh, in uh, Cincinnati, slash uh, Ebron, Kentucky. So yep. uh, one is beside the other. Uh, and we're a division of uh, Blue Star Corporate uh, with uh, headquarter in, uh, in in Montreal, but uh, offices across the system in and, and Canada.
0: So help us unpack that ecosystem a little bit. So, you know, retailers, restaurants, they all have uh, phenomenal from point of sale to networks to whatever. And and how do they, walk me through how that product gets to be in those stores and what what your role is in this kind of ecosystem. So you've been on the manufacturing side, Motorola to Zebra. But what's your role in terms of making those products come to life in and with retailers? So we work. So one of the rules uh, that are
3: golden rules for distributors, i.e., a blue star, mm. is we never deal with the end user customer. Okay. Right. So it's so the end user being right. the retailers. Yep. Um, our mission in life is to teach, educate, enable work with re, um, value-added resellers. So the way to go to market for us is through value-added resellers. Hmm. Uh, and the way we do this, and what's unique about about us, is I take the uh, challenger sales approach. Hmm. Um, the challenger sales states that you got to bring insights to the customer. So insights, in our case, to the VARs, hmm. insights being, again... Through teaching, through educating, through new trends, to what are we seeing in the market. And the beauty of this tea is you have a 180-degree visibility on the market. Mm. So we, we, we live trends, right? So when you've got a product group that goes skyrocket and other product groups that decline uh, for
0: a certain period of time,
3: uh, this becomes sort of trends. And
0: you feel that you feel that rise or decline organically, right In other words, your partners are just asking you for less of those products to distribute less of those products. So that's how you kind of take the pulse. you're one step away from the front, but it allows you to step back and see the broader trends. Correct.
3: Plus w- don't forget that the vendor, i.e the manufacturers are also customers. Hmm. right So you've got you got to learn from them, you got to educate yourself. What is the next phase of technology that they're going to be releasing? To give you an example of this, uh, five, six, seven years ago, uh, mobility was through uh, Windows Mobile, right? Mm. So Microsoft products. Five, six years ago, the trend that we saw is this moving to Android. So uh, at that time, 70% of our sales were uh, through Microsoft. Mm. Today it's completely the opposite. Seventy percent is Android. So, mm. uh, it's it's we see trends with what's being purchased, but we also see trends with what's being manufactured sure. and what's
0: being decided mm. to manufacture. Right? right, right on. And you and I have talked about trends like uh, personal devices that become in store. We've talked yes. about uh, point of sale that it's transforming from a self serve all the way to your your Amazon Go, which. You know, in one way, threatens uh, a lot of livelihoods in the infrastructure, but it's really the change you you experience and have been living for your career. But certainly, from a blue star perspective, right? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what are we seeing these days? Um, just to give you an example, uh, because of lack of resources or employees out there that are available, I think. The RCC stated that, uh, you know, 250,000 jobs uh, mm. were not filled in 2018 because of lack of people. Mm. So what is what is the market reacting, or how is the mar- market reacting, I should say, is self-serve. Mm. So you see the, uh, you know, kiosks in all shape, form, sizes appearing in the market, and we just had a conference a couple of minutes ago where the Moneris guy was saying that uh, you see 20% hike hmm. of the shopping cart when it's kiosks. Hmm. So retailer is also about analytics, so sure. they recognize this. Hmm. So not only do they not have to employ people, uh, the shopping cart increases. Right. So we are absolutely seeing a shift from... Uh, individuals or employees servicing customers, where it applies, to uh, kiosk approaches to the business.
0: Well, I, I hear that trend as well. And what retailers like to to say is, uh, first of all, customers like self-serve checkout in the yes. in the appropriate yep. at the appropriate time in the yep. appropriate place, and it also allows them to free up the staff that is in the store to do more value-added. Work with the customers, right? So yep. they can go in and then talk about matching the right cheese to the right war, right wine, and let people check out as they right. as they see fit. So you're seeing that example. Absolutely. What about an infrastructure perspective? Lots of stuff going on in the security space. You know, keeping your network secure is that is that on top of mind for you? And so it
3: it is on top of mind, but it, it's migrating so fast. So. Mm. 3G to 4G. Uh, we've been on 4G for 10 years, right? Mm. So, so 5G is just around the corner. I was with at and uh, in the US a couple of uh, months ago. They are deploying 5G, right? They 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 are absolutely accelerating deployment mm. of 5G. The reason I'm talking about 5G is latency and lack of speed and whatnot is going to disappear. So, therefore, you already have, for infrastructure purposes, you already have manufacturers that are 5G ready, Mm. right, that are ready for failover. So, if uh, always connected and your customers are always connected and they pay with Apple Pay or whatever, if the network goes uh, sour, you can't operate anymore. Mm. So, so we're seeing more and more trends towards failover opportunities Mm. where... You know, you install something that resides on the 4G today as an example, but is 5G ready. Mm. That's an example of the, uh, I guess, infrastructure that we're seeing out there. Also, security is security is security, mm. right? We, In Eastern Canada, we're, we're hearing this week about Desjardins again yes. with the yeah. breach. Uh, there's not a week that goes by now that you don't hear about a, a breach, the only disappointment that I would say in the observation that I, that, I, that I make is VARs are not so or as concerned as they should be about mm. security. Because mm. when you install at an end-user level, PCI states that you're responsible for the well-being of this uh, install, right? Right. Uh, I think there is a there is a shift hmm. towards understanding this, but I believe that PCI and others have got a bit of work to do to <clears throat> make the VAR aware of the responsibility that they have hmm. uh, when they install, some, you know,
0: POS solutions and things like that. Sure. Um, so, last question. How do people get a hold of you or, or Blue Star if they want to learn more and... and uh, understand uh, what you do. Website, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, website, uh, phone call, right? So
3: mm. uh, uh, I we've got pride in saying we've got 40 people in the country mm. uh, servicing from coast to coast. Um, could give us a call. Uh, they could give me a call. I, you know, my business card has got my cell phone number. Mm. That's how available I am. Uh, but I think, um, you know, through, again, uh, end users, uh, it is a bit challenging for us to get involved with, uh, with, with yep. end-users. Yep, yep. I, I think our model, as I stated, is through VARs. Sure.
0: But uh, easy access... And you work with a whole host of VARs, and they can also be accessed and pointed in the direction through, oh, yeah. your, through okay. your site. But I mean, that would okay. be the primary. Today, we've
3: got uh, like a vicinity of about twelve to 1,300 active VARs mm-hmm. in Canada in all verticals. Right. So, um, so again,
0: we are we are present, we are available, uh, and more than happy to engage. Right. Great. Well, thanks for joining me on the Voice of Retail. It's a real treat to see you as always, and uh, yep. I wish you a great week. Likewise, thank you very much. Well, all right. Thanks to David, Cheryl, Lynn, and Michelle for being my guests in this episode. Now, let's hit the highlights from retail this week. First of all, I kick off with uh, an article from Toronto Life, which is a look inside Eaton Center's colossal new. Apple store. So, congratulations to Troy Dunn and the entire team. Great retailer, great operator, and a great team. Hundreds of people uh, working at that store, and uh, it's really the first one in Canada that is the embodiment of the of the newer vision. Uh, I saw that uh, newer vision articulated in several countries, uh, London, England, and uh, most recently in uh, New York City on the Fifth Avenue. So a great store. Make sure and check it out. It's really, uh, you know, it is it is uh, the uh, the latest iteration of uh, the greatness that is uh, Apple stores. Uh, Next from Strategy Magazine, Matt and Nat goes beyond eco-friendly and vegan products. Uh, Page back a couple episodes, you know, great interview uh, with Matt and Nat's CEO. Um, And you really kind of get a sense of how committed they are to the brand and how he and the organization is really so committed uh, to what they're doing. So great article there from uh, Strategy Magazine. uh, From CTV, a holiday hustle, why more Canadians are shopping in store than online, uh, experience is still king. We all know that. We've talked about this on the podcast many, many times, uh, especially with the holidays. It, this is quote: uh, people like to get out, they like to see Santa, do the hustle and bustle, uh, and uh, it is one of the things that is the characteristic of holiday shopping. A uh, fashion retailer Coase opens up a largest Canadian store on Robson Street. This is, uh, of course, part of Coase uh, is part of a uh, part of H uh, and M, H&M and is really uh, 500 square meters, beautiful store. Uh, this from uh, the the Strait, also known as uh, as the George Strait. Big news, of course, with uh, the purchase of uh, Cineworld, buying Cineplex for two point eight billion dollars. Good video uh, talking about that from uh, BNN, and also videos from uh, the House. This late breaking news, so to speak, on Thursday, the House in the U.S. Uh, uh, House of Congress approves the U.S. MCA trade deal. So, you know, it's really kind of fascinating to watch this. Not a political podcast, but as on the one hand, uh, the impeachment. Uh, process rolls on. On the other hand, Congress, Democratic Congress, approves uh, this trade deal. So uh, good for them, and kind of um, you know putting aside the fact that it gives uh, Trump a win in uh, in some eyes, uh, in all, in many eyes, in terms of negotiating a treaty or closing a treaty. Certainly, great job for uh, for the Canadian Christopher Land and uh, the Canadian team has done a wonderful job in uh, landing this plane, so to speak, bringing this home. Such an important trade deal. Great relief. Uh, for retailers to have this uh, this one almost wrapped up. Staple staff stops scam, and they're the heroes, say, witness this from CBC. You know, one of these uh, CRA scams and a confused person in a St. John's store uh, trying to do a money transfer, and the staple staff just stepped in, intervened, and, and uh, calmed that person down and, and uh, saved him, uh, him or her, it doesn't really say, actually, uh, a tremendous amount of money. Uh, so congratulations to the sharp. Uh, sharp eyes and, and caring people at staples uh, retail around the world by 2023 the second-hand closed market will double to 51 billion dollars uh, we've talked about this trend before um, and you know it's this intersection of, of gen Z and the second-hand market and and uh, the the rental economy and all these different things Um sustainability uh, so more this from fast company more uh more kind of anchoring into this trend. Uh, what else? Uh, more on Amazon's new grocery chain. This is from Canadian Grocery They're opening up a, a store in California, an old uh, Toys R Us store. So a bit of a bit more information. Uh, detective work really on what's going on there. Uh, Bed Bath and Beyond's new CEO just laid off his entire C suite. Uh, so new CEO there at uh, coming out of uh, Target and, and for Bed Bath and Beyond and deciding a uh, change. Uh, changing the bed, so to speak, (laughs) in terms of clearing house and uh, moving uh, a whole new executive team in. From CityLab, kind of an interesting, a little bit of a quirky article, actually, the bankrupt American brand still thriving in... Japan. And it goes through all these different brands that are gone from the landscape uh, here in North America, like Dina and Deluca, it's one of my favorite stores in the uh, in the building, New York Times building, gone. Uh, but it still lives on in uh, Japan. Who knew franchisees and the, the names are still strong. This so fun article from uh, CityLab. Lord & Taylor is plotting its comeback under the new owner, La Tote. Isn't this interesting from CNBC? Chris Hudson's Bay uh, sold the interest in, in Lord & Taylor to La Tote, and now they're doing a pop-up store in Soho. Uh, unfortunately, it'll be gone by the time I get back there for uh, the big show in January. It's uh, going to wrap up by the end of the holidays. But uh, it's just interesting how uh, La Tote is, is taking what was a massive store and shrinking it down, putting it in Soho, and, and seeing what they can do. Uh, Let's see. What else? What else from independent retailers? Oh, this is great. Uh, Great story from uh, Retail Insider, Craig Patterson's Retail Insider. Unique retail concept, Reckless Bikes, expands the fourth location. Um, You know, what a great story Reckless Bikes is. uh, And uh, do check this out. Uh, You know, four stores, very focused, tried to open in different places, but it's a great independent retailer. Um, and uh, and winner, actually, in 2015 of uh, Independent Retailer of the Year from Retail Council of Canada. So check that out. Uh, your Financial Post just now starting to unpack all the different things that are going on in the Ontario cannabis market after a one-year freeze of rushes on to buy out Ontario's first wave of cannabis retail lottery winners. So I guess there's all kinds of legal details behind this around what you can buy and what you can't buy and when you can buy it uh, and how you can buy it out and how you can transfer the license. Eesh. Anyway, well let's we'll, let's look forward to April when just the market gets opened up, uh, and uh, and we can get the right number of cannabis stores started uh, in this uh, in this province, and of course so important to the rest of the country uh, with uh, such a big market to help, uh, help the entire infrastructure uh, from LPs through to hiring through to whatever. Uh, so we the, we look forward to, uh, to April, but in the meantime we see lots of things uh, evolving thanks to um, the complicated. Uh, lottery winning process in ontario uh from ci from C- cbc yeah, city take back, city taking back the empty queen street west market uh so if you've ever been into toronto on queen street right across from the ctv office of the old city tv building uh there's a great west uh, uh market thing market building and it's just you know it's just you know, been a disaster so uh, i guess the city's taking that control of that back so we can hope that brings vibrancy back to that space uh, spotlight on digital uh, supply chain, online grocery shopping could explode in Canada's for McLean's. Diet uh, th- th- really gets into the whole, uh, amongst many other things, Sobeys-Ocado deal that's going to be rolling out next year. And you know, right now, they're, they're, you know, JC Williams talking about uh, here, online grocery purchases represent about $2 billion, 120 billion it, $20 food. So it's really just, you know, say scratching the surface is, a, is an exaggeration, uh, but it's kind of a good uh, overview, Sobeys. Uh, and, and uh, what they're doing in Loblaws, Metro, Walmart, and, uh, and Amazon. Speaking of Amazon, Amazon blocks sellers from using FedEx for prime shipments. This made the news interesting. That control, man, as uh, Amazon themselves get into uh, supply chain uh, and uh, take steps to uh, to manage the experience, as they would say, by uh, not allowing their marketplace shippers to use FedEx. Ground, anyway, so fascinating. Um, this is, uh, George Laurier, Inventor of the UPC, and you know, we'll hear, uh, you know, we we'll heard Michelle Ciro talking about the importance of UPC. Dies at ninety-four. So, you know, you can think of two things that have revolutionized uh, retail behind the scenes. One is the UPC code. The second I think of is, is container format um, harmonization. So all shipping containers are all the same. These two things that you know you don't really think of every day, uh, but have become just so important uh, to retail and uh, the retail industry. So um, George Laurier, inventor of the UPC dies at 94. Uh, lastly, Stitch Fix CEO talks about the future for online fashion company. Uh, and so, you know, their shares, I took, this one talks about the shares going up and down on CNBC. They've been going up and down for the years, um, you know, at, from 18 to 36, from 18, then back again. Uh, but, uh, you know, this um, this talks about that it's, uh, you know, it is still fundamentally a really interesting, really great business. Uh, so do check it out if you don't know uh, or know enough about Stitch Fix. Well, we all right, well, this that is a wrap on this edition of The Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes. or your favorite podcast platform, please rate and review. Be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.melablan.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week.